Hello and welcome. I'm Will. And I'm Alicia. This is Enter the Rabbit Hole. Each week we dive into and dissect the weird, the momentous, and the downright interesting. And today we're covering Operation Midnight Climax Part 2. Yes, so uh, if you have not listened to Part 1, that's very, very silly. Go back and listen to Part 1. What are you doing? Go to the farm. Yeah. Get trained up. Exactly. Yeah, is that a CIA reference, or are you just telling people to go uh, into agriculture? I'm pretty sure the CIA training ground is called the farm. It is, but I thought you were just telling people, like, go, learn about crop rotation, yeah. uh, seasonal vegetables. Wow, you're... What about the nitrates in the soil? I see your estimation of my intelligence is, is quite low, but... I, I... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> my apologies. Uh, Alicia, how are you? Um, I'm fine. You have been obsessed. Yes, I have gone full fucking Charlie Day on this thing, mm. haven't I? Um, we were out for drinks. I was knitting and all of a sudden my yarn went all over the walls. <laughs> Don't knit with red yarn, that's clearly a trigger for me. Uh, we, we were out for some drinks last night, weren't we? Mm-hmm. Don't worry, we're still bright-eyed and bushy-tailed this morning. Uh, but And we wore our masks. And we and we wore our masks. We were very safe, but the uh, the couple that we were with, uh, I think I was boring the hind legs off them with just CIA chat, which is what we're going to do to you right now. So I hope you're ready, guys. <laughs> Way to set it up. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna get dull. No, there's some genuinely interesting stuff in here, but if you're just looking for a quiet night out with friends over a couple of drinks, and then you get cornered by me in the kind of headspace where I've been for the past month. Run! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, find an excuse. Get out of the- oh, oh, my phone. Bring, 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 bring. Oh, sorry. I, I got to take this. Oh, <laughs> a text. Okay. Well, I can see your mouth moving, but, you know, clearly you want to leave the conversation. So I won't let you. <laughs> but let me just tell you this one thing. <laughs> uh, all right. So, Alicia, why don't you uh, furnish us with a, a recap but first. Oh, yeah. Why do I do this every time? <laughs> you're the one who wrote this as well. And I insisted that we say it. Uh, if you're listening, go ahead and follow the show and leave us a review. Good, bad, or ugly. We'd love to hear from you. Also, if you have any ideas for future episodes or, you know, you just want to chat, please share with us. You can find us on etrhthepod at gmail.com or at etrhthepod on social media. Yeah, if you do have any ideas for future episodes, sharing them with us is quite an important step. Shouting them at passersby or just uh, other people on the bus will just get you some odd looks. It might make it back to us eventually, but probably not. Yeah. Our network hasn't reached that far yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's slowly creeping out there. Shh. Anyway, speaking of creeping out, why don't you... Creep us, us out, out with a little recap of what we were talking about last time. Well, the CIA is very bad. Um, that's <gasps> pretty much it. <laughs> uh, no, so the the CIA was created uh, post-World War II. It grew out of the OSS. At that time, in, in the 40s and 50s, there was the creation of LSD by, I forgot his name, I'm looking uh, at Albert, Albert Hoffman. Hoffman. Yeah. And the CIA found this drug and thought, oh, that's perfect for mind control. 
Yeah, and of course we have the backdrop of uh, the beginning of the Cold War. So ostensibly the CIA believed that mind control was very much a thing and that it had already been mastered by communist China and communist the, the, the Soviet Union. Thank you for letting me do my recap. Right, okay, so I'm so sorry to have stepped on your recap. <laughs> All right, uh, enter Sidney Gottlieb, the most sinister man until today. Why did you say that looking at me? <laughs> You're the most sinister man. No, until we talk about a, another man today who's probably more sinister. Oh, yeah, he's, he's well, a real I would fucker. say Sidney Gottlieb is sinister in the way that it's like, ooh, creepy, whereas like George Hunter White is more like a hammer. There's no, like... Middle ground there. Yeah, there's no elegance with him. Sidney Gottlieb is the core components of what you imagine when you imagine a CIA... Mm. uh, He's got those little round glasses, you know? Like, um, he's very much in the background, doesn't want to be seen, and he controls everything. Yeah, he he looks like a bureaucrat. He looks like a pencil pusher, but... uh, is responsible for some very, very bad things. Including deprogramming, which we covered last time. Basically trying to break down the human mind in order to build it back up for mind control purposes. Of course, they never got to the building part. They only really got to the destruction part. Yeah, they did the psychic equivalent of putting your brain in a paint shaker, a hardware store, and then letting it run for like an hour. And then you're like, that's not the color I wanted. (laughs) This isn't sunrise yellow. This is a this is a bunch of mashed brains. This is the strangest BQ I've ever been in. They're very helpful though. They will try and get you the tools and hardware that you need. Yeah, to do torture. <laughs> We're still talking about BQ? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Very helpful. Um okay, so Sidney Gottlieb did a lot of very bad things, and if you don't remember what they are, just go re-listen to the podcast. And if you didn't listen to the podcast, what are you doing here? Get out of here. Yeah. Uh, guys, we have done a ton of research for this. Uh, we have got a big old fat, juicy sources uh, appendage, which uh, well, sounds weird talking about mm, my fat, juicy I appendage. Know. Uh, Sources. (laughs) We've got lots of sources, and as always, they will be in the show notes. So, yeah, if you want to do some further reading, go ahead and have a great weekend with that. I will not be doing any further reading. (laughs) After this. Unfortunately, before we get into the episode itself, uh, I was doing some last minute, just quick dotting of I's, crossing of T's before we recorded uh, this morning. He added a whole other page. I added a whole other page, and I came across... The way that you do, like, before you hand in an essay and then you come across, like, a new article and you're like, oh, this is exactly what I wanted. This is the thing. Yeah, unfortunately, (laughs) like, that's been included in the sources, but it's not necessarily going to make its way into today's show. I see. So, yeah. So there's one surprise source. Can Mm. you find it? It's not a competition. If you find it, we have... No prizes to give you. It's a very, it's a very, uh, believe it or not, it's a very amateur operation over here to uh, enter the rabbit hole. What? This blanket <laughs> fort isn't standard? No, it's not your, your, uh, it's not the kind of thing they have at the BBC. I see. Yeah. Well, they're missing out. Because mm. this towel over our table is excellent for uh, muffling sound. Yes, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. That's why we're not allowed to touch the table. <laughs> You're peeking behind the, two, uh, the curtain too much. All right, so uh, should we should we jump in? 
Yeah. Yeah. Hit me. But don't, actually. With facts. Yeah. Jeez. I was a very minor missionary, actually a heretic, but I toiled wholeheartedly in the vineyards because it was fun, fun, fun. Where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, kill, cheat, steal, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the All-Highest? The missionary slash heretic in question was a man named George Hunter White, writing a farewell letter to his former employer, none other than our old friend Sidney Gottlieb. Can I just say, White is a bag of bastards, but that is an excellent quote. That's like movie-level, like, Hollywood-level quote. Yeah, if, um, if you were writing a movie with an anti-hero, the, like, the villain of the piece at the center of this whole thing, and then at the end of the movie they were reflecting on what they had done, that is the kind of thing that they would put on paper. Uh, one thing, uh, I guess, important to note about George Hunter White up top, he sounds very much like a pulpy... 1930s like hard-boiled private investigator and i think that is like his internal monologue as well i mean i think that's because that's who he is yeah (laughs) right whether that is by his own creation or otherwise that i think that's the narration that's going through his head this entire time so just have like that and some like soft jazz playing in the background sure, just imagine him calling everyone a dame and really just like running his eyes up from their legs to not their face very slowly yeah and he'll he'll backhand anybody a man a woman a if, dog if they're hysterical if they're just having a conversation doesn't matter Strank his martini yeah well we'll get to that white was a man of many faces who by his own admission and the accounts of those around him lived his life like the anti-hero of a pulp comic. He was a spy, an assassin, a thug, and a voyeur with a penchant for the kinkier things in life. He was also at the centre of one of MK Ultra's most far-fetched and heinous sub-projects, Operation Midnight Climax. By the time Operation Midnight Climax began, White had already led a very storied life. He had originally worked as a journalist in his native California, but left the profession to, quote, get closer to the action. As a police officer assigned to Vice, he shot and killed a drug dealer on his first day on the job. And then they gave him a medal. (laughs) The drug dealer in question was a guy named Tuffy Jackson. And in one account that I heard, and this is just from one account, so he he really fucked up in his first day, uh... He was given, I guess, spending money to go and try and buy some heroin. The first time he did it, he got ripped off. The guy took his money and was like, okay, I need to go get my stash. I'll be right back. Obviously, he didn't come back. So he tried it again with a different with with a different mark. And when he felt the guy was about to rip him off, he drew his gun and he tried shooting him in the head. And apparently the bullet ricocheted off the man's head. And he then shot him in the stomach. By the way, this account I heard, all of this happened in plain view of everybody. This was in the middle of a park in the middle of the day. So he didn't have the most auspicious start on the Vice Squad. Why? As a police officer? 1930s, different time. Okay, not that different, unfortunately. <laughs> but like your first instinct is like, well, I'm going to get ripped off again. I must kill this man. Hmm, um, 
let let's leave that to one side for just now. Uh, let let's see if anything else that we tell you about George Hunter White kind of uh, you know paints the picture of this man's character. In 1935, he began working for the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, or FNB, an early precursor to what is now the DEA. In 1937, while working with the FNB in Seattle, he helped infiltrate the Hip Sing Tong, a Chinese gang of opium dealers. His work led to the arrest of 30 gang members across the country. During the war, he worked for the OSS under Wild Bill Donovan, who you might remember from last week's episode. Mm. This is the man who uh, had uh, 100 ideas a day, 95 of which were terrible bullshit, and yeah. 5 of which were also bullshit, but could help win the war. <laughs> but somebody liked him. <laughs> but the president liked him. Uh, so he worked under Wild Bill Donovan and was stationed amongst other places in Calcutta, there, he rooted out a Japanese spy. Sorry, I read that as he <laughs> he worked as a Japanese spy, uh, like as in like undercover, and I just had like flashbacks to... Um... <laughs> he did like a full Mickey Rooney, yeah. Oh, no, I was thinking more... Um... Oh, J- like Sean Connery? Yeah, and, Sean Connery. Uh, you Only Live Twice? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they just <laughs> they just combed his hair down slightly and uh, tw- like plucked his eyebrows and gave him like uh, an ever so slightly like yellow hue. And they were like, this guy is fully Japanese. And meanwhile, Asian people were looking at him like, what is this white guy doing? Why is this white guy literally in yellow face, but his face is painted yellow? Konnichiwa. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. I mean, he basically, uh, he's doing what Steven Seagal has done for the past 30 years. Yeah. That guy's a piece of shit. He really is. His work helped stop the locations of Allied fortifications from being leaked to Japanese bombers. This decorated war hero went on to crack a dope ring in Mexico, shut down a heroin plant in Turkey, and provide evidence against drug networks in Rome. On a surface level, White had a highly auspicious career, which frequently brought him up against hardened criminals, and sometimes required him to get his hands dirty to get the job done. Wow, he really sounds like a stand-up guy. He's done some amazing things. I mean, and this is this is all factual. So a lot of this, a lot of what we're going to tell you today comes from the horse's mouth. It comes from George White's many, many diaries that he kept uh, throughout the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s. However, this this is true. Like he was essentially a, a a war hero who, with his help in Calcutta, uh, one of the Allied installations that they had there was being bombed repeatedly, and they couldn't work out how the Japanese bombers were able to locate them so precisely until he came across this old uh, this guy who was posing as like an old Chinese shoemaker, I believe, and he. White immediately fingered him as being a spy, so he, like, knocked this man down in public. I feel and... like he's just, like, super racist and got lucky. Like, he's like, it's that man! <laughs> you know, a broken clock is right twice a day, all right? Um, but either way, as soon as he caught this guy, the, the bombing stopped. So, in that sense, he saved a lot of lives. The real spy is, like, over in the corner, like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to cross that guy. So yeah, this is all this is all very much based in fact. Uh, so so far, he's, he sounds like an interesting guy, right? You you'd want to sit down and have a drink with George Hunter White. 
I mean, not knowing what I know, but <laughs> sure. <laughs> ain't going anywhere near my drink. Mm-hmm. As we mentioned in the previous episode, the OSS and other clandestine organizations were interested in manufacturing a so-called truth drug, something that could be slipped to enemy agents or prisoners in order to pull information from them. In 1943, White was tasked with testing one of these potential truth drugs, tetrahydrocannabinoyl acetate, or THCA. It was administered in the form of lace cigarettes and given to the test subject, a member of the Italian mafia named August Olgi Del Gracio. Del Gracio and some of the other New York mob members were supposedly being targeted by the OSS to help with the war effort. They would use their affiliations with the Sicilian Mafia to help subvert the access powers in Europe. Del Gracio had previously been contacted by White, and it was under this context that on May 27, 1943, he invited him up to his apartment. This I find really interesting, because the, the US Department of War were concerned about two things. One, that ships were being targeted in New York Harbor by access uh, by access agents i guess and that they were being given access to them by italian dock workers who were were linked back to essentially to mussolini and two uh they were trying to pave the way for an allied invasion of italy and so they saw their in as being these italian mobsters and if you look into this a little bit there's uh, some contention as to how useful the the Italian mob in New York was during this time. So some people say that they were pivotal to the war effort, and other people say that they were essentially in the right place at the right time, and as they always did, they just kind of used this to their advantage. I mean, I think it's probably a little bit of both. They mm-hmm. did very clearly have ties back in Italy. It's not like when people say, like, I'm Italian-American now. They're, they're clearly no, not. You, you just enjoy marinara <laughs> sauce yeah. and you have very hairy arms. But like back then, they would have been speaking like Italian with their family and they might have gone home to visit had there not been like a war on or sure. you know, sending letters home, that sort of thing. So very, very clearly they had ties. But I mean, can you trust, one, can you trust the mob? And two, if you're you're going to give these people credit for something they're going to be like oh yeah definitely we did that yes one could say that they were a fan of tall tales (laughs) but it's interesting that you say like how can you trust these people this is the question that they were trying to ask in the form of these thca lace cigarettes del gracia was apparently there for a flying visit he had a car waiting for him outside but after white plied him with some of his homemade jazz cigarettes ones that he had personally removed from the pack, injected with liquid THC, and resealed inside to look brand new, he ended up staying a little longer. Two hours longer, in fact. And during that time, Augie del Gracio spilled his guts about some of the most private corners of his family's operation, killing informants, hiding information from the feds, the ins and outs of their drug trade, on and on. This was the first of several chats between Del Gracio and White. Each time the mobster would smoke White cigarettes, and each time he would lay forth unprivileged information that could have easily gotten him killed. On one occasion, he apparently inhaled a dose that was so strong, he was rendered unconscious for an hour. Yeah, there's like some accounts where basically 
they're they're talking about they're talking and he's like i gotta go like in 20 minutes and he's like all right all right no problem have a cigarette and then like an hour passes and he's like i gotta go in 20 minutes like my car's waiting and then like another hour passes and he's like 20 minutes i gotta go do you remember that christmas song that uh we is has kind of been cancelled like baby it's cold outside yeah it's like that but with uh (laughs) with a member of the fmb feeding you drug-infused cigarettes the the reason George Hunter White was close with Del Gracio, who he didn't like, by the way. They weren't, like, friends. Um, what? They're not, like, best buddies? <laughs> They're not, like, friends. Hanging out together, Mickey and one another. All the time. Um, basically, White had led, like, a raid and saw Del Gracio as, like, a little fish. So he intentionally, like, saw him, let him go, knowing... That Del Gracio would now owe him a favor. And then they just kind of traded favors back and forth. And I think White is kind of, is the kind of guy who you think you're friends with. And you're, like, you're definitely not. So Del Gracio would have thought that they were, like, on pretty good terms. Mm -hmm. And White's like, oh, I would give you up for, like, half a cigarette. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. Whatever else you say about White, he was a very... I think he probably came across as being quite boorish, quite oafish, but underneath that, he knew how to charm people. And when you talk about him catching Del Gracio, recognizing that he was a small fish and having the potential to lead him to much bigger fare, that's the exact same thing that he did back in the 1930s with the Hip Sing Tong on the West Coast. So when he was stationed in Seattle, uh, he got introduced to the Hip Sing Tong and then used one of their, like, their low-level players as an informant to try and infiltrate their gang, which, considering that he was a white man moving amongst a group of, uh, a very tight-knit group of Chinese immigrants and then convincing them, in, in some accounts he became like a full-fledged member of the Hip Sing Tong, before uh, bringing down their operation across the country. I mean, that's crazy. White, for his part, was very... He was very good at his, his job with the Federal Narcotics Bureau. Yeah, he's he's very good at being <laughs> a corrupt cop, basically. Yes, he gets an A++ <laughs> for being a fucking dirty cop. Um, And he also... He also looks like a big white baby like like one of those like ugly babies you know like your friend has a baby and you're like oh that baby's really cute and then you look at like some of the pictures and you're like oh like the head is like kind of like cone shaped and like did you ever watch mork and mindy like in the in the later seasons where they get like that um because on mork's planet people age backwards right so they if I remember this correctly, like, they have a baby, but the baby is, like, a fully grown man, and he's, like, a very, he's, like, he's, like, a very rotund, bald man wearing, like, a baby bonnet and going, like, Google Gaga, like, that's what I imagine, that's what I think of, of when I think of George Hunter White, or, if you've ever seen Full Metal Jacket, um, the the soldier at the beginning of the movie, in, in movie, he goes section eight and ends up like killing the platoon sergeant and himself. That yeah, that's what he looks like. Or uh, Kingpin from the the oh, yeah. Daredevil, yeah, Daredevil on Netflix. He's he's a ve- he he ain't a good looking guy. He's and- not, and he has so much sex. <laughs> yeah, he's not a good. So he's not a good looking guy. 
And I think he's had that thrown in his face quite a few times. And let's let's say that's manifested itself somehow. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Clearly, White had no qualms about dosing other people. This position of power he allowed himself is something that he clearly enjoyed immensely. However, he was also a firm believer in trying things out firsthand. And during his lifetime, White would sample innumerable illicit substances, all in the name of research. In one of his diaries, he wrote, quote, I served as a guinea pig from time to time. My personal observation was that the effect of all of these drugs was essentially the same, except for the degree or extent of the effect. THCA was more potent than marijuana, and LSD more potent than THCA. So far as I was concerned, clear thinking was non-existent while under the influence of any of these drugs. I did feel at times I was having a mind-expanding experience but this vanished like a dream immediately after the session. So, I I think this was White. He would... He didn't just, like, dose these cigarettes and then give them to Augie. Like, he went home to his apartment and, like, dosed, like, gave himself the drug, is that White? And then, like, got super wasted several times, like, trying to figure out the right dosage then before he, like, offered the cigarettes. So one way of thinking of it is because the other thing that we're going to discover about White is pretty fond of a drink, right? Let's call him a high-functioning alcoholic. So he clearly already has some um, substance control issues. Another way of looking at this is he's like a hunter, no pun intended, um, who is testing out his weapons before taking them out in the field. So... When he's dosing himself with these various different substances. It's like he's shooting himself in the head. Exactly. The way the way that an expert marksman would shoot themselves in the head before attempting to shoot someone else, mm-hmm. right? Obviously. Which is why we have so few expert, expert marksmen. R.I.P. Perhaps it was White's willingness to self-experiment, his moral laxness in how he treated potential informants, or his unconventional approach to extracting intelligence that drew the attention of Sidney Gottlieb. Whatever it was, in 1952, Gottlieb, who was then acting as the head of the chemical division of the technical services division, as well as the head of the newly formed MK Ultra project, invited White to join the CIA as a consultant. The following year, the position would be confirmed. Quote, CIA got final clearance and signed contract as consultant. Met Gottlieb. Lunch, Napoleons. Met Anslinger. White noted this meeting in his diary, in which he kept thorough details of his work. The Anslinger mentioned was Harry Anslinger, White's boss at the FBN. His extent in the work with the CIA and MKUltra have never fully been clarified, but according to White's diaries, he seems to have been the only person within the FMB who was aware of White's sidekick. And it would become more than a sidekick. Yeah. And uh, I think that's where we should take a break. Oh, absolutely. So uh, let's go and dose some cigarettes and like... Yeah, I'm going to go off them around. Maybe some kids. <laughs> See who yeah, wants one. Absolutely. Well, Sharon is Karen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, let's get let's get nice and mellow during the break. The golden rule, right? I want someone to offer me free drugs, so I should give them free drugs. A hundred percent. Let's see if Alicia returns. <laughs>
Hello, and welcome back. Oh, hello. Uh, I'd like to begin with, uh, first, a quick omission of gratitude. I am grateful that you chose to go outside of the studio Please to... Please don't! <laughs> I, I appreciate that. That is very unselfish of you. I am not okay with this. <laughs> Everybody farts, but I appreciate that you didn't fart inside of our recording space. Well, I'm going to now. And, Okay. Just a heads up. Uh, and uh, also, a, a quick side note. Uh, in the first part, I was referring to it interchangeably as the FBN and FNB. After a quick Google, we've uh, come to the conclusion that it is the FBN, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, not the Federal Narcotics Bureau. Mm-hmm. So just to be clear, moving forward. All right. Well, Alicia has given me a look that says she is ready to go and very happy with my level of truthfulness. So, yeah. Uh, So earlier we were talking about how George Hunter White uh, got his gig with Sidney Gottlieb and was basically uh, embarking on his career as a CIA consultant. So that year, White began renting a house at 81 Bedford Street in New York's Greenwich Village under the pseudonym of Morgan Hall. Morgan Hall was a character White had dreamed up from his undercover work. Hall was a longshoreman, an artist, a poet, and a bodified beatnik. Hall would approach strangers and acquaintances in the hip backdrop of Greenwich Village and ply them with drinks. He would then invite them to his apartment on Bedford Street to hang out. It was from this apartment's fully stocked bar. They would then be given a drink, with an extra little something of it. A little shot of LSD. The apartment was wired for sound, and as such, White's colleagues were able to record the results. White, still posing as Hall, would then fire questions at his drinking buddies to see exactly how much truth could be gleaned from their presumably nonsensical ramblings. Whether they had communist leanings was a given, but anything and everything, from social security number to how well they got along with their parents, was considered pertinent to their investigation. I just, in my head, when thinking about, like, a beatnik poet in, with the 40s, I cannot picture White passing off. He looks like, like a mini Churchill. Yeah, yeah, okay, uh... Go there. Definitely go there. We don't have photographic evidence of this, but the description is exactly... If you imagine somebody trying to pass as a beatnik with, like, the turtleneck and the beret and being like, Hey, daddy-o, hey, you cool cats, you hip to this joint? You know, like, that was exactly what he was doing. Because I guess that stereotype comes from somewhere, and people of this time... I guess, were speaking like that. And again, White, he was very good at switching, I guess, code switching. He could, he could lapse into fluent beatnik like that. And so he, you know, I mean, he was good enough to get these people up to his apartment and, and slip them a drink. So, you know, he must have been doing something right. Or they're just desperate for free drinks. <laughs> what? Are you trying to say that some people will hang out with other people that they don't really like just to get free alcohol? 
No. no. <laughs> Over the next couple of years, White would continue in this vein, and for the most part, he seemed to fly under the radar. But White was not some meticulous scientist or academic, and he wasn't above getting sloppy. One of these bouts of sloppiness was when White slipped a dose to an aspiring actress named Linda King. He took King to his apartment and grilled her for information, before sending her on her way, no problem. Well, there was one problem, and that was when King attempted to jump from the roof of her apartment building. This is a theme we'll see a lot throughout this story. (laughs) This was typical for White. He would drug his victims and then poke around in their minds like a child poking an anthill. But a child doesn't care about the well-being of the ants after their world has been turned upside down. And in that way, after his questions were done, they were sent on their way. He certainly didn't want them coming down in front of him and asking awkward questions. And so it was with King when she ended up on the roof of her high-rise, contemplating suicide to relieve the inexplicable horrors that had come to inhabit her brain. Fortunately, she was talked out of this by her friend, who subsequently took her off to Lennox Hills Hospital for treatment, where Miss King would tell anyone and everyone that a man named George White had put something in her drink. Her friend's name was Albertine. Albertine White, George's wife. So, uh, George White has a wife named Albertine. She's a bit of an enabler. A little bit. Uh, This is actually, in some reports, this is his second wife, in some it's his third. The reports agree that his first wife was pretty verbally abusive towards White, and she would call him a fat slob, and basically was kind of withholding and made him feel really bad about himself, and later psychiatric screenings would suggest that this imprinted on White and coloured his view of people from then on. He kind of had this... Women. <laughs> yeah. He, well, he kind of had this thing about rejection. Uh, I mean, one thing that happened uh, throughout his career, he he applied to the FBI repeatedly, and he was just considered to be not FBI material. And so he had this consistent rejection throughout his early life that he really internalised. And this is not... I'm not trying to excuse any of his behavior because... No, let's let's start by saying, like, you're in an abusive marriage or partnership or friendship or whatever. Get out. That's healthy. That's good. I'm proud of White. Not proud of what he goes on to do, though. <laughs> good for you and done. Um, but yeah, this is... It, it does... It's not an excuse, but it is maybe a part of the reason why he does what he does because... Saying that he does this for his job or for uh, national security, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't hold up. No, there's a lot of background schemata going on here. A lot of little pieces that we probably will never know the answer to, but none of this really ends up being for his job. <laughs> uh, no, this, is, this becomes more like, uh, like a passionate hobby, shall we mm. say. Albertine and George's relationship is important to our story. Albertine was George's third wife, and if he had a rough time of it in his first two tries, this time around he was faring much better. Apparently, Albertine doted on her George. In her eyes, he was an upstanding lawman. According to Douglas Valentine's 2002 series Encounter Punch magazine, quote, 
She described him as effective and punctual, a great raconteur, a voracious reader of non-fiction books, and a very good writer. According to her, George White was a liberal Democrat who never picked a fight or resorted to strong-arm tactics. So, either... You, you know how sometimes you read about serial killers' wives? Yeah, and they're either like, they're lying or, like, they've deluded themselves. I mean, everybody has, uh, everybody has, like, a locked room in their house where your husband goes for several hours at a time, making, you know, getting very sweaty and making noises, and, and a wife just doesn't go in that room. Right? Right? Sure. Yeah. Your, your, your husband's, uh, your husband's sweat room. Like, Bluebeard. Uh, yeah. Bluebeard? The story of, it's like a fairy tale where he's in a castle and he has, like, a new wife and he's like, you can go anywhere in the castle except for this one locked room. And then she goes into the locked room and there's, like, the bodies of his previous wives or something like that. Oh, that's creepy. Um... Have that in the back of your mind, because to what extent Albertine is culpable in all of this, I think is up for debate. But then she does something much later on that is, is really unusual. It's, it's really unusual. I'm going to go ahead and say she's culpable. But there are some things that Albertine knew about her George and his double life. First, Albertine knew that White was a narcotics agent. She was also likely aware that he was drugging people on a regular basis, but probably explained it away as being work stuff. She also knew that George engaged in extramarital affairs, because the two of them were swingers, living within an open relationship. In fact, George had slipped drugs to another couple during one of their swinging sessions. This did not go down well. I was just going to say, you know, speaking about passionate hobbies. Yeah, <laughs> You know, and we're going to say a lot of stuff about uh, their swinging lifestyle. There is zero shade here. There is zero judgment going on. Everyone within that dynamic or uh, within that particular dynamic, as far as sex is concerned, are consensual adults. However, again, this is something that White warps and perverts for his own needs, his own desires. So, yeah, they, uh, they, they enjoy... Let's call it a, uh, a non-monogamous marriage. During his time in New York, White was becoming less and less particular in selecting his targets. Or perhaps a better way to put it would be that he was becoming more bold, more sadistic, perhaps more self-serving. If all of this was in aid of gathering data to simulate mind warfare scenarios against the communist threat, then why the scattershot approach to his targets? Where was his control group? And why is it that he went into meticulous details in some areas of his diaries, and yet seemed to have little to no interest in what happened to his drugged subjects after they'd left his company? One questionable target was a woman named Barbara Smythe. 19-year-old Smythe, also referred to in some articles as Barbara Newsom, was part of George and Albertine's circle of after-hours friends. I'm sorry, I didn't know she was 19. Yeah... But bear in mind, this was a time when, okay, you know, nowadays you can still get married when you're 16, but the the average age of marriage has gone up over time. I know, but how old are they at this stage? Um, well, I believe Albertine was 30, in her early 30s at least, and I think uh, George White was a few years older than her. So let's say that he was 
probably in his 40s at this point. I I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not going to say it was a different I mean it was a different time, but I don't think it excuses any of this. She and her husband Elliot were introduced to the couple through mutual friends, a pornographer named Jill Fox and his wife Pat, who had already engaged in some sexy drug-tinged fun with the whites on previous occasions. Pat had even helped paint the murals on the walls of his Bedford Street safe house. Gill would later describe his relationship with Whites by saying, quote, I knew George well, extremely well, in a strange way. George was into high heels. That was his major fetish. He liked my books, too, and he asked me to write about high heels. So he's a pornographer and an author? Uh, yeah, but so when I say pornographer, I mean he was writing erotic fiction, gotcha. primarily lesbian fiction. So he would just take his own heterosexual experiences and then imagine them being replayed as, as two women. I believe his wife may have been bisexual as well, and so she was happy to provide some accounts for him. And he would write under different pseudonyms, so he had at least three different uh, pen names, if you like. George White was aware of this, and so he asked him to write some fiction about ladies getting it on while wearing high heels. God, life was difficult before internet porn. <laughs> I know, right? You you had to pay a man to draw pictures for you. It's like that episode of South Park where the internet goes down and uh, Randy discovers the internet in a FEMA tent, and it's just like a cardboard box that's been designed to look like a PC, and there's a little guy behind it with a notepad, he's like... <laughs> <laughs> say what you want to watch is like uh lesbian porn he just draws two stick figures with like <laughs> circle boobs making out with one another uh it's, th- it's basically start, that you always start this with like it's like that episode and i'm like no i'm not gonna know <laughs> you don't know but the listeners will be very familiar with mm. so uh yeah he and again no shade no judgment here he was really into high heels apparently it was something to do with uh Stepping a, on his balls. <laughs> he was also into some S&M. He enjoyed it. Uh, sometimes he needed a little bit of discipline, as is the case with men who wield immense power. Sometimes they like to be on the flip side of that. He, The high heels thing apparently came from um, an aunt that he was fond of when he was younger who wore high heels. Again, the like your adolescent, your, your infant, in some cases, formative mind... I, it it, it I does know. whatever it wants, right? Uh, and he had a closet full of high-heeled shoes that he bought specifically for Albertine to wear because that's uh, that's that's what got him off. I mean, you know, sure. Yeah. If all of, I mean, Seen if weirder closets. <laughs> look, if all of this sounds like really salacious for the sake of being salacious. We're we're going somewhere with this. It's important. White is a horny dude, and he he doesn't just like vanilla sex a couple of times a month. Oh no no he he's into a lot of stuff, and he 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 wants it when he wants it. Jill and his wife made the introductions in the two thousand two Counterpunch series. Elliot Smythe recalled, "Quote: Jill said he knew some people over on the west side that I might like to meet." I'm not trying to make excuses, but I was 25, going on 17, and the Foxes were our friends, and I had no idea that White was a government agent, so Barbara and I went to see them. Apparently, there was an instant attraction between Albertine and Barbara's husband, Elliot, but the couple were both turned off by White and how 
fat and gross he was. Uh, Elliot's words, not mine. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, they just weren't into it. Which, based on our earlier descriptions, like, you you get. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's rude, but, like, I don't think sexuality, you know, you can't, like, be like, well, you know, just get over it and have sex with him. No, certainly. Um, and I guess fair play to Elliot for not pressuring his much younger wife into doing that. I don't think he turned around to George and said, uh, yeah, we'd be down to clown, but you are too fat and gross. So we'll do it with your wife, but not with you. Uh, I think they just maybe politely declined. Okay, so George Hunter White was born in 1908. Oh, really? So he, at this time, would have been in his... 40s, his mid-40s? Yeah, yeah. This seemed to be more of a speed bump than a red light for George White. It always is with those kind of men. <laughs> mm-hmm. On January 11th, 1953, Albertine and George invited Barbara to join them for dinner. She must have trusted them because she decided to bring along her 20-month-old baby, Valerie. One of Albertine's colleagues, Clarice Stein, and another acquaintance named Francine Kramer were also in attendance, so Barbara probably felt more at ease. White poured the ladies a pitcher with a little extra ingredient. No prizes for guessing what that was. LSD. Uh, no, it was actually Angostura bitter. Oh. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. But I also, that that also poisonous. Yeah. Well. The women became overpowered by fits of laughter, but the rest of the evening would not be so pleasant for all of them. Upon returning home, Clarice was convinced that something terrible would happen if she fell asleep. In his diary... White would later refer to her having the horrors. Clarice tried calling White repeatedly, but he refused to help her and eventually stopped responding altogether. God, he's such a piece of shit. I, it's not his problem. Like, he, and this is why I don't, this is one of the things I don't get about White, and this is why the whole idea of national security kind of falls flat, is that he is really into, really into, Rufian people, Apparently his favorite thing was watching this change occur. You know, you 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 have been slipped a little something you don't know it, it's and you a power go from dynamic. yeah you you go from being compassmentous to realizing that something's wrong, but not knowing what's wrong or being able to articulate that to being fully overcome by this trip, and he really got off and seeing that, but didn't really care to follow through in it or you know. He, he just, he wasn't concerned with what happened afterwards. So this is personal. <laughs> um, I have been roofied before and, you know, nothing, nothing happened, luckily, aside from being drugged without my knowledge. But I had no idea what happened until like much later when a friend told me, oh, I, I've been roofied and this is what I was experiencing. And then like clicked for me being like, oh, that's why that night was so strange and scary for me. And I can only imagine, like, that was probably GHB or something for these women having no idea what had happened to them. And that, as we talked about before, fear really affecting how LSD affects your brain. So them being terrified, having no one to guide them, and then their fear just multiplying what LSD does to them, it makes me so furious. Of course. And... That must be such a horrible experience to go through. And then 
I guess, fortunately or unfortunately, what we've discovered over the last decade or so with more people coming forward and saying, well, this happened to me. It happened in a nightclub. It happened in a bar. It happened at a friend's house. And I didn't realize until, you know, I started feeling this way. The upshot of that is that, like you said, more people have realized, oh, this happened to me. And and actually, it throws the events of whatever night into a new a new context. Ironically, this is actually what would happen to a lot of the victims of George White. They had no idea what had happened at the time, and it was only decades later when people came forward and talked about these CIA experiments that they had a light bulb moment and realized, oh shit, that's what happened to me back in the 1950s or in the oh, 1960s. that's why my life was ruined. Precisely. And, you know, that's not hyperbolic because... Again, we're we're a couple of we're a couple of squares. We're you know we're we're a couple of rectangle McGees over here. We haven't done a lot of uh, illicit substances, including LSD. So we don't know what it's like to have a trip, let alone have a bad trip. But my understanding is, even when you go into it fully aware, like you are the one who mm-hmm. has decided to take this uh, substance. Yeah, they recommend you having a guide because. Right, you could still have a bad time, you can still have flashbacks after the fact. It could be triggered by the slightest thing uh, years afterwards. And that's after, that's, you have decided to do that. You're aware of what's going on. If somebody just gives you that shit and you have no idea, well, we, we're going to discuss the consequences of that. George Hunter White has some real serial killer vibes. Yeah, I think in a different light, we would know his name, but in a very different context. Uh, California in the 1960s, that's like fucking serial killer Mecca, so (laughs) he would have fit right in. Uh, So, Clarice, she's gone home, she's experienced these, what White calls the horrors, she's trying to get in touch with him, and he he declines, and uh, it's only when a friend comes to her aid and basically gets her to sleep the following day, she had to go back to work with Albertine White, knowing that her husband had done something to her. And what of Barbara Smythe? Elliot would later recall how, although she never told him about her visit to the Whites, that night marked a turning point in her personality and her behaviour. She became increasingly paranoid, convinced that people were out to get her, convinced that the mob were targeting her. Elliot Smythe said of his wife, quote, Barbara was healthy in the early days of our marriage. She was a good wife and mother. I can't remember exactly when she began to deteriorate, but this was several years into our marriage, and it got progressively worse. We started going for counselling, but that didn't help, and eventually we separated. She went to live with her parents, and later, out of a desire to possess her, I called and asked for a reconciliation. When I got to her house, she was cowering in a corner. She thought the mafia was out to get her. Her parents were unable to cope with the problem, so on our psychiatrist's advice, I admitted her to Stony Lodge Hospital in December 1958. Not long after that, we got divorced, and Valerie went to live with my parents. During her time at Stony Lodge, Barbara would be repeatedly administered electroshock treatments. Ostensibly, this was to help cure her condition. However, author Douglas Valentine speculates this may have been set up to erase her memories of the incident with George White. I mean, I wouldn't put it past them considering they had so much pull at other psychiatric 
Well, facilities. Exactly. If you'll recall episode one, we were talking about uh, the Allen Memorial Institute in Canada, where they did this exact thing to uh, women who had been sent to hospital ostensibly because they had postpartum uh, depression and they were given electroshock and other treatments until there was nothing left of their mind. And you remember earlier you were talking about how uh, Barbara was only 19 years old. And I think previously we had talked a little bit around uh, ages when you are primed to experience mental health issues such as schizophrenia for the Mm -hmm. first time. Yeah, you know, when you're around about 21, I believe, is a prime age to be triggered for a condition like that. Yeah. So schizophrenia doesn't always present itself. Um, it, it usually presents within like your 20s. And usually there is some sort of emotional trigger that happens to present schizophrenia. So it could be possible that Barbara already had like schizophrenia and she she hadn't like presented symptoms yet and she may have never like presented symptoms it's not necessarily like i don't i don't know i don't know that much about schizophrenia yeah but we- it's possible that either lsd induced like triggered her schizophrenia or it induced a kind of psychosis in her brain yeah which is what uh psychiatrists who would find out uh, years later in the 1970s would go on to suggest had is exactly what had happened to her. We are just playing an armchair psychologist here. Um, but it is a little bit easier to come to conclusions about this with, with the benefit of hindsight and the still ad- admittedly limited knowledge that we now have about mental health conditions nowadays. It, it's come a little bit further than it was back then. So yeah, Another public breakdown of someone closely linked to the Whites. Someone who is neither a communist agent, nor a common criminal. Also, it was becoming harder and harder for White to secure test subjects to bring up to the Bedford Street apartment. Word spread about a guy named Hall, a man wearing a pea coat who would talk your ear off about art and music before inviting you back to his place to listen to records and then slip something in your drink people were becoming more and more wary of George White in New York. Furthermore, many years prior, he had made an enemy up top. White had gone public on a minor indiscretion committed by New York Governor Thomas Dewey. The two had crossed paths before, and White was already disliked by the governor. This was before White disclosed publicly that Dewey had commuted Salvatore Lucky Luciano's prison sentence in return for helping the OSS during the invasion of Italy. This information hurt Dewey's public image, and he retaliated by blocking White's promotion to the role of district supervisor of the FNB of yeah. the FBN in New York. So this is what we were talking about earlier when both the OSS and the local politicians in New York had got involved with the Italian mafia. Basically, he, in return for the help he had given during the invasion of Italy, and in return for a a campaign donation from the mafia, uh, Governor Dewey would commute his sentence and get him an early prison release. And White had disclosed this information publicly. It's so ridiculous because White is such a dirty cop and a dirty person. And yet he's like, ah, 
You can't do that. <laughs> He's not above slinging a bit of mud. I think he, of all things, I think White, White is very acutely aware of what he is. And I think where other, I, I'm not saying this with a tone of respect. I just think this is very matter of fact. White is playing a game with other individuals and those individuals might be lying to themselves as to why they're playing the game, telling themselves that they're doing it for the greater good. I think White knows exactly why he is playing the game and why other people are playing the game as well. So I don't think he has any qualms about calling out other people for bullshit, not because he thinks he's better than them, but because he because he just likes aggravating people. I don't think it's that. I think he has like a very black and white view of like those are the bad guys, we're the good guys. Mm-hmm. Like he, he 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 has so many contacts, like underground contacts, like criminal contacts, but he never thinks of them as anything more than like an insect that he can use. And he's very much like, oh, you, you've crossed the line. Like, I use these people, but you did a good thing for them. Yeah. Um, I don't, I mean, I agree with some of what you're saying to the extent that he thinks that uh, there are good guys and bad guys and he's one of the good guys and the other people are bad guys. I don't think that's what he believes. I think he believes that there are just two sides. There's sure. the side that he is on and... Whatever it is, it's black and white to him. Yeah. He, he doesn't have any kind of view of, like, there's no areas of grey. There's not, like, oh, you were just in, like, a bad spot or anything like that. He He's very much like, well, you broke the law and and therefore, like, you deserve to go to jail, even though he breaks the law daily. Yeah. But it's that's not where... He's above that. Well, maybe this is just a sadist worldview, right? The This idea that I have the power, you don't. Therefore, it's my it's my role to subjugate you. It's my role to do what with you whatever I please because again, I have the power, you don't. Whatever it was, White was pissing people off and freaking out others. But it would be the death of one government agent that would provide the final nail in the coffin for the New York all. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, and then that cliffhanger Break time? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Hey, welcome back. Yep, welcome back. <laughs> uh, so, during the break, what happened? Nothing. What? Why are you always I don't. Gotta... I don't know why we've always got to give people a recap. I just assume they must be super interested. They're not. Okay. All right. So, on November 28th, 1953, the body of a man hit the sidewalk in front of the Stadler Hotel in Manhattan. When police entered the room 1018A, they found a man sitting on top of the toilet with his head in his hands. This man was Robert Lashbrook. He had been sleeping, he said, until a noise woke him up. So just to be clear, he wasn't sleeping on the toilet. No. Uh, no. He was sleeping in his bed and then ostensibly and now... walked to the 
walk to the toilet to sit on the toilet for some reason. Like he wasn't wasn't taking a shit. He was just like sitting on top of the toilet with like his, I tell head you, in his hands. So one some of the times when I've been on the toilet with my head in my hands, it's it's been a pretty dramatic shit. So maybe you just had like a lot of curry. I don't think they ate curry in nineteen fifty three. Not not in <laughs> We don't know what they ate. It's true. <laughs> I I don't think these white men did. Alright, so he was on the toilet. Not after mm-hmm. a let, bad curry. Let me okay. get back to the story. Jesus, you gotta rip into everything, don't you? You gotta, oh, I didn't talk enough earlier. <laughs> <sighs> the night manager. Carry on. <laughs> the night manager, on a gut instinct, returned to the lobby and asked the operator if any calls had been made from room 1018A. Yes, the operator had replied, and what's more, she had eavesdropped. This was back in the day when there were switchboards, so, like, the operator is sat in a room in the hotel taking calls into the room, and she she can basically, she just has headphones on, and she can just listen to what anybody's saying. We can assume that they all just had a box of popcorn next to them, and they were just listening, like, open mouth, like, oh, no, oh, girl. Especially when it's as juicy as this. It's pretty juicy. Well, he's gone, the caller had said. Well, that's too bad, said the man on the other end of the line. Dr. Harold Abramson, a physician, LSD expert, and one of the CIA's medical collaborators. So correct me if I'm wrong, I believe he was ostensibly an allergist who was dosing his patients with not allergy medicine. He's a... He's just a real piece of shit all around. Oh, I've never felt this way off Benadryl before. The dead man was Frank Olson, bacteriologist, father of three, and victim of the CIA. Frank Olson worked at the secret U.S. biological warfare laboratories at Fort Detrick during and after World War II, along with some ex-Nazi scientists. As you'll recall from our last episode... Uh, a lot of wacky and evil things were made in Fort Detrick, mm. uh, and it was the uh, inside cell for MKUltra. According to The Guardian, quote, Dr. Olson had developed a range of lethal aerosols in handy-sized containers. They were disguised as shaving cream and insect repellents. They contained, among other agents, staph enteroxin, a crippling food poison, and the even more deadly Venezuelan equine... Acetamili- oh boy, I should have practiced this. Encephamiliitis, and most deadly of all, anthrax. Further weapons he was working on included a cigarette lighter, which gave out an almost instant lethal gas, a lipstick that would kill on contact with skin, and a neat pocket spray for asthma sufferers that induced pneumonia. Having been a um, asthma sufferer myself who has had pneumonia, Fuck you. <laughs> That's your nightmare. <laughs> Knowing what a bunch of pranksters they are inside the CIA, mm. I can only imagine what japes they got up to when the new guy came into the office. Like, when the new guy comes in and he's like, oh, you haven't shaved? Oh, you gotta shave before you see the director. Use this. And then when he comes back in, they're like, oh my god, you didn't use that shaving cream, did you? Oh my god, you've only got five minutes to live! Considering the new guy is going to be Sidney Gottlieb, it's probably <laughs> the other way around. <laughs> you got Gottlieb, bitch! <laughs> Alright, 
1953, Olsen would be working for the CIA near Sidney Gottlieb. And Robert Lashbrook. Hmm, that's also a familiar name. Remember the man in the hotel room? On the toilet? Mm. Toilet man? <laughs> toilet. Not, not the last <laughs> toilet man of this episode. Sure won't be. Uh, in the CIA, he still worked uh, at Fort Detrick, now doing experiments where he gassed or poisoned animals. He would be greeted at work with piles of dead monkeys, and according to Olsen's son, Eric, the test disturbed him. He also... Well, I can't see why. He's clearly living the dream. <laughs> Making lipsticks! Love Mondays, cream, am I right, guys? Gassing some monkeys! Just another dead pile of capuchin monkeys. That's just another Tuesday for me. Uh, he also observed torture sessions, according to the again according to The Guardian. Olsen witnessed horrific, brutal interrogations on a regular basis. Detainees who were deemed expendable, suspected spies or moles, security leaks, etc., were literally interrogated to death in experimental methods combining drugs, hypnosis, and torture to attempt to master brainwashing techniques and memory erasing. Yeah, the hypnosis must have been the worst because yeah. you got you got to deal with like a little dude with a tiny goatee and he's got like a shiny purple shirt and a, like a little brightly colored pocket vest. watch that he yeah. keeps swinging all the time. Like, okay, look at my eyes, look at my eyes, don't look at my eyes. You're a chicken. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a chicken though. I would prefer to be a chicken for this though. Yeah. If that could actually work out for me, that'd be great. Could we could we bring back the guy with the clamps? <laughs> is he still is he still an option? So all of this is to say that according to Olsen's family, he is not in a great mental headspace. They basically they said he was coming home every night, like, upset and stressed. And, like, it, I don't think his sons were very old at this time period. And they could tell that, like, something was seriously wrong. Daddy, what's wrong? <laughs> monkeys! Yeah, I like monkeys. <laughs> monkeys are cute. So, so cute. Daddy, can we get a monkey? No. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) No monkeys. But you got so many monkeys lying around. Oh, God. On the 18th of November, 1953, there was a retreat organized at a cabin in Deep Creek Lake, Maryland, for four CIA scientists that ran MKUltra and five Army scientists from the Special Operations Division of the Chemical Corps. Mm, Deep Creek Lake? Yeah, it's a... You you don't go out to that lake no more. It seems like they've chosen it specifically for its name. They're like, oh, ooh, sinister. They drive up and they see a dude with a hockey mask and a machete. Hey, what are you guys doing here? Oh, we've we've got the lake booked this weekend. Remember? Oh, oh, I'm I'm such a goose. All right, see you later. I guess I'll murder these sexy teens next weekend. Have a good one. The first day was uneventful, but on the second, Lashbrook produced a bottle of Contrell after dinner and poured glasses. Olsen, among several others, drank heavily. Never do this if you can... The, the first red flag should have been like a bottle of Contrell, like, whoa, you're not like throwing that into something? <laughs> just straight. Yep. Just, you just want me to drink, you don't it's have like any gin liqueur, or vodka? Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, what? Get your granny drink out of my face. You're clearly up to something. 20 minutes passed, and Lashbrook asked if anyone felt odd. The drinkers admitted that they did, and that's when Lashbrook revealed that their drinks had been spiked with LSD. The news was not received well. 
But soon the men were laughing and unable to continue with the meeting. That's when he revealed that they'd been spiked with diet cola. <laughs> this is a viral marketing campaign. I had no idea. Coke Zero, I couldn't tell the difference. And then later, we're going to look at a pickup truck, and you're going to tell me how amazing it is. (laughs) (laughs) It looks so amazing. I love that it's got tentacles. Uh, When Olsen returned home, he was agitated and upset. I think pretty understandably. Mm -hmm. He asked his boss, Vincent Ruit, who had also been drugged, if Olsen would quit or if Ruit would fire him. Ruit talked him down. Now Olsen was aware of the true nature of MKUltra, one of 24 at the time, nine of whom had been at the cabin in Maryland. I wonder if they were aware at the time that CIA is the kind of club that you can join, but not the kind of club that you can leave. I think Ruit was aware. I yeah. don't think Olsen... Olsen didn't know the extent. Like I'm, So some sources say that he was kind of working for the CIA or that... I can't I can't get a grip of whether he was actually CIA scientist or if he was still like an army scientist. It seems like he left the army, but he was still like basically doing his exact same job. Yeah, which is worth saying at this point, guys, we have drawn upon uh, innumerable sources for today's episode, um, some of which do contradict one another and some of the details do get a little bit fuzzy. Um, so if you know better and you want to point us towards something that, that we haven't covered today, uh, as always, etrh at gmail.com. ETRH the pod. ETRH the pod at gmail.com or ETRH the pod on social media. So Olsen again complained to Ruit, who talked to Gottlieb. Big mistake. Gottlieb, after meeting with Olsen, told him there was a psychiatrist in New York that he should see, as the psychiatrist had equal clearance about MK Ultra and Olsen would be able to talk freely. So, Olsen flew to New York with Lashbrook and Ruit. The issue here is that, remember that Dr. Harold Abramson? Mm. He was not a psychiatrist, and he had been chosen by Gottlieb for his deep loyalty to the MK Ultra program. Mm-hmm. So he just did, like, uh, Inkblot, what do you think of this? Inkblot, what do you think of this? Inkblot, what do you think of this? I guess, uh, lie down on the couch? Yeah, um... Dreams? Have you had any any dreams? Not even a couch in here. Uh, just lie on the floor. I don't care. Uh, do you, your dad? Did your, da- your dad touch you? Did he ever touch you? Look at this doll. It's great, isn't it? Yep. Well, that's, enough that's of that. a doll. <laughs> All right. I'm a psychiatrist. Remember. In New York, Olson told Abramson that after the incident in Deep Creek Lake, quote, he had been unable to work well. He could not concentrate and forgot how to spell. He could not sleep. Abramson allayed his fears, but on his trip home, Olsen told Ruit that he couldn't face his family for Thanksgiving. Basically, he kind of has like a breakdown in the car. Like they get off the plane, they're driving him back, and he's like, just just let me out here. Just let me go. Like basically in the middle of nowhere. And Ruit was like, you know I can't do that. So <laughs> Olsen goes, well, just turn me into the police. I'm sure the police are looking for me. Which seems like a weird thing to say, but basically he he's now aware of what MK Ultra is doing and that he has instigated like so so much stuff in MK Ultra, like given them the tools that they needed. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's like, Well, I'm sure like the police will just take me in. Like I should just be arrested. Like he he's having some real Yeah. At least the Oppenheimer knew what they were gonna do with the mm. atomic bomb. He uh felt 
really bad about it, but at least they weren't like giving tiny atomic bombs to innocent people on the street because that would just be a bad idea all around. I think the real culprit here is Thanksgiving because the stress of having to see your family at Thanksgiving that would send anyone over the edge. Uh, sure, maybe maybe some families. I enjoy seeing my family at Thanksgiving, but I'm sad if you don't. You're a real weirdo. That's right. I sure am. So, Root suggested that he go back to Abramson's, and the threesome took a taxi back to New York. Why'd you use that term there? Because I thought it was funny. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> no follow-up question. Abramson met with Olson, then Flashbrook, then Olson again the next day, where he convinced Olson to enter voluntary hospitalization at a sanitarium. Lashbrook and Olson checked in at the Stadler, had dinner, and at 2.25 a.m., Olson went out the window. Can I, so can we tell you some spooky-ooky shit about the Statler? The Statler was one of the preferred haunts for CIA spooks over the years. One of the reasons for this, apparently, was that they had uh, little passages in the walls where you could, for example, deliver freshly laundered clothes or drop off somebody's luggage or a meal without having to interact with the concierge, which means things could be passed back and forth between rooms or makes it easier to bug rooms with recording devices. So already the backdrop for this is pretty spooky-ooky. There's also, like, basically... They're in this hotel room, and after the fact, Lashbrook was like, oh, yeah, he was really happy about potentially being committed. He basically thought, like, okay, I'm going to be safe now. Like, this is all going to be solved. Olsen. Yeah, Olsen was like, you know, like, I'm going to go into a sanatorium. I'm going to have a chance to relax. Be like a spa. They give me, like, a little white dressing gown. Do, like, the cucumbers on the eyes. A little electroshock therapy. Yeah, just lightly. Just tingles. Um... Lashbrook even said, oh, oh, it was like the old Dr. Olson again. Um, he, he read a book, and then he went to bed. Mm. 22 years later, the Washington Post ran an article about how the CIA drugged an army scientist, and his reaction to the bad trip caused him to jump out a window. The Olson family, armed with this new information, began a lawsuit against the CIA. President Ford got wind of this and so met with the family and apologized. This is the first time, basically, a president has met with the family of a CIA operative who has been killed by the CIA and, Ger- like, publicly apologized. Gerald Ford uh, liked to do things a little bit differently, huh? He was a very kind of, like, down-home kind of, like, country, country boy. Style. Um, yeah, so he... I mean, this was at the behest of the White House lawyers, they were like, you need to, like, make a public show. Yeah. And I, I believe he arranged a tour of, I, th- I believe it was a tour of Langley for the family. And they were able to eat the then director of the CIA. Who, this was years after Alan Dulles had stepped down from the role. Uh, who, of course, was able to kind of do the cartoon Captain Kirk, like, <gasps> shocked face mm. where he could be like, well, I mean... I can't believe this would have happened. You know, those people back then, they, they ran a very different shop. Uh, you know, so we had no, no idea. We no would idea never what they do were that up to. Yeah, again. no, no. Hide the microwave guns. So the White House lawyers offered them $750,000. And that's around two... Sorry, that's around five million today uh, to drop their suit. And they reluctantly agreed. Hmm. 
1984, the family visited Gottlieb. Basically, Gottlieb at Olson's um, funeral had said, like, if you ever have any questions, you can come visit me anytime. So they visited Gottlieb to ask him some questions. Apparently, they, like, opened, they came into the office and Gottlieb opened the door. They were like, oh, hello, hello, how are you doing? And he was like, oh, you guys are, are so lovely. Last night I had a dream that you were coming here to kill me. And the family was, like, immediately on the defense of, like, oh, no, 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 we don't have that's, any animosity towards you. That's clever. Yeah. That's very clever. So, at the end of the meeting, Eric, Frank Olson's son, was taken aside by Gottlieb and told that he seemed very upset about his father's suicide. Had he ever considered group therapy? It was at that moment that Eric was like, too far. You, you've gone too far. Yeah. Like, now I know. He was suspicious. Basically, he was like, oh, now I see you have, like, a horse in this race. And, yeah. like, he was pushing really hard for him to, like, oh, you know, like, what's I, so wrong? I know a great psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. if, uh... <laughs> exactly. So he, he waited until his mother's death to exhume his father in 1994. There were no toxins in the body and no wounds consistent with jumping through a window. Notably, Olson had landed on his back. And yet, the skull above his left eye was disfigured. And so, it was confirmed. Murder. Can we talk about some of the some of the stuff that does not add up? So, you mentioned, and I'm not sure how you can, um, how you can determine, because presumably a corpse at that stage is a skeleton. Yeah, I would assume so. But, but they've managed to find contusions above his eye, so which... They found it on the skull. Like, right. There are contusions on the skull. I guess they're they're saying there weren't any, like, maybe, like, nicks on the bone from, like, the glass. Based right. on, like, the way he, he should have gone through the window. If he was jumping, maybe he would have, like, been protecting, like, his, his face to jump through. So, weird shit that doesn't add up. The contusion above the eye, which is consistent with a CIA training manual on the best way to incapacitate a subject before disposing of them, knocking them out, and then a fall of, I believe, at least 70 feet or 75 feet onto a hard surface. The fact that the window was closed when he jumped. Who, who... Who would jump through a window right, to commit suicide. Right. That's not... Why would you make the process more unfeasible and, and painful than it needed to be? It seems stupid but i guess that at the time like in in 75 because remember this was in 53 that he he, he quote unquote jumped, jumped they um they were like in 75 well, oh well he had a really bad trip so he went kind of crazy and like jumped through the window okay but uh, yeah it doesn't add up the fact that when lashbrook was taken to the police station he was searched and in his pocket they found a piece of paper with the initials uh, GHW, George Hunter White, and MH, Morgan Hall, his alias, if you'll recall, as well as the address of the Bedford Street apartment where they had their safe house. Weird, kind of weird that he would have the, the address of that supposedly unassociated um, CIA consultant in his pocket. Uh, from what I can gather, 
Gottlieb had contacted George Hunter White to ask if he could take care of the Olsen situation, but he was on the other side of the country in California, where he's originally from, dealing with his mother's funeral. Uh, his mother had just passed away. However, he was very close associates with a man named Pierre Lafitte. Did you come across Mm-mm. Mr. Lafitte in any of your... So he is like the French connection. He, I believe, was amongst other things. He, he was like... Uh, a thief as well as a drug dealer. And uh, he is another one of these people that White had spun in order to use him on future operations. Now, he happened to have got a job as a bellhop at a hotel. Can you guess which hotel it was? Was it Trump's hotel? Uh, Yeah, and that's where (laughs) it started to go wrong, baby. At the Statler, of course. And then guess who left their job at the Statler not long after Frank Olsen disappeared to move on down to St. Pete, Florida for a bit of R&R, Mr. Pierre Lafitte. It doesn't fucking add up, Alicia. Where I'm covered in red string. Hilarious, because it's already been proven murder. It's ridiculous to me that um, the concierge is like, something's wrong here. And like goes to immediately check if somebody called the hotel room. He's like, tell me what they said immediately suspicious whereas the police officers are like oh, yeah that seems all right yeah, fair enough jump to his death <laughs> the police are yeah, like say what you will about the police all right they're corrupt they love pushing people around a cab whatever but i i don't doubt that even in the 1950s the police officers were inundated with paperwork And they, like anybody else who has got a full entry, are just trying to get home. They're just trying to get it done. So if they if they see a man has like jumped out of a building, up suicide. That (laughs) let's call it. Let's call it a day, folks. So I don't know. I, 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 I'm so I'm so aggravated by this whole thing. The the thing that really pisses me off is that basically they know like Eric is like Eric Olson. They killed my father. They murdered him because he wanted out and they couldn't have that. Because remember, he's like one of 24 people who knows what's going on. And so they murdered him. But because they had received this payment from the CIA, they couldn't sue the CIA. So he asks like in 2007, I think, or or some, sometime in the 2000s, he's like, please reopen the case. Right. Um. And, and basically charge somebody with murder. I don't think it ever went anywhere. I, I, mean, I haven't found any other... By then, a lot of our main players, mm-hmm. uh, spoilers, are, are dead. And so who who do you bring to bear in terms of this murder? The CIA. That's who you bring to bear. Like, I don't care if it happened under previous administrations or whatever. It's not anything different from the shit that they're doing now yeah and the fact that they get nothing from this like yes there are a lot of victims and a lot of like people who probably still to this day have no idea what happened to them Mm -hmm. um the fact is like we know what happened to frank olsen we know that he had he was probably like they they knew that he had like a strong moral compass and that had they let him go he would probably blow the whistle right and that's why he had to go I think the CIA knew that they'd only gotten away with the supposed suicide by the skin of their teeth. And I think that's why 
one of the reasons why Gerald Ford was advised to meet this family and why they offered them, uh, what did you say, a $5 million payout? Whereas, as we'll see later, that's a hell of a lot more than most of the other victims got. Yeah. With the death of Frank Olson, Sidney Gottlieb found the CIA and his department exactly where he didn't want them to be, on the front page. Even if suicide was the accepted cause of death at the time, there was still enough buzz surrounding the incident to convince them that it was time for a change. So in 1955, the decision came down to close shop in the apartment in Granite Village. George and Albertine decided to move back to their home state of California. The story might have stopped there, but Sidney Gottlieb told White that it would begin a new operation, one which would test the truth-telling capabilities of drugs when mixed with sex. White christened the operation, what else, but Operation Midnight Climax. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, that would be a good time to end part two of O's for Operation Midnight Climax. Indeed. Yeah. So, do you have a fun fact for me? Uh, I certainly do. Let me just uncover it here. Okay, here we go. Uh, did you know the CIA hired a magician to help train their agents in sleight of hand? John Mulholland had previously been a student of Harry Houdini himself, and he was hired by the CIA uh, to try and show agents like White the art of misdirection, how to attract targets, and how to conceal substances in objects such as hollowed-out pencils, matchbooks, and coins. So he was approached by the CIA. Apparently, he he was like a red, white, and blue patriot. And when he was approached by the CIA, they said that his his skills would be used for national security. And he kind of filled in the blanks for himself. But he had he's one of the few people in the story who isn't really culpable, right? Mm-hmm. As far as he was aware, he loved performing magic he loved teaching magic to other people so he was just teaching the art of sleight of hand to a group of individuals who would use it against enemy agents right and uh ended up using it to roofie a bunch of uh innocent people but they did it really really slyly you know wow, what i mean you couldn't with, even tell their hand <laughs> with some real pizzazz yeah and he, he had some real so this was the when i was saying earlier in the episode that i came across a document and i was like ah oh, why did i not see this sooner um this is let me see if i can find the name here in our sources uh the official cia manual of trickery and deception by h keith melton and robert wallace uh which as with, Excellent. As with all of our other sources, uh, I, I will include in the show notes. So yeah, that's my fun fact. Uh, my fun fact has to do with sex dolls. Excellent. I don't think we've talked about this before in the show, but I think we have talked about this as a couple. <laughs> <laughs> in our in our alone time. Um, basically, in during the Cold War, uh, when spies in in russia were were trying to we get lonely yeah yes uh no when they were driving and they were pretty much always being followed so you were trying to drop someone off on a mission but it was immediately noticeable when the car behind them would see that nobody was in the front seat anymore your passenger had obviously gotten out so they designed 
a blow-up sex doll that would in like sit in the seat and as soon as the agent got out they would activate it and it would show up as the shape of a person in in the front seat like in the front passenger seats so that nobody would know that they had gotten out of the car that's brilliant i love it but i am picturing the r&d department being like okay that's great uh, i loved how quickly you flipped it open and it blew up i do i uh, a couple of couple of questions here um I notice it does still have the uh, the orifices on there. It's still the mouth is kind of gaping, and and the the vagina is there a is there a national security reason for that? Or uh, so, I know I notice the breasts are really they're quite they're quite uh, they're quite uh, they're quite sizable there, aren't they? Um, is that uh, to to throw off the enemy agents or? And so I noticed there's a tiny bottle of uh, what what looks to be baby oil uh, in the in the package as well. Is that to to throw under the enemy wheels and they'll they'll kind of is that um you're gonna have sex with this doll, this is aren't not you? A speed racer. No, cartoon. <laughs> uh, you're you're fucking this this uh this tool, aren't you? Okay, so let me finish my fun fact. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> when you keep on going on a rant. <laughs> I was waiting for you to jump in, but sure. I wasn't interested. Okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. Um, basically, one of the problem was that they needed quite a few of these sex dolls. And so the I think the agent in charge of procuring them felt really uncomfortable sending his secretary to, like, sex shops to pick up sex dolls. So he's like, so I just strolled on out to myself. And I think he bought, like, 30 sex dolls. <laughs> just looks the shop owner dead in the eyes like, I am very lonely. <laughs> Have a good day, sir. I need all of these for personal use. Now, I am going to need a little bit of help getting these out to my car, but I won't tolerate any chit-chat, okay? Any follow-up questions will result in a, a, an end of this purchase, okay? I'm just a very horny man. <laughs> help me to the car. But don't touch me. <laughs> don't touch me. Don't look at me. All right, gang. Well, we hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've liked the show, please give us a like, give us a follow, and leave a review. This has been Enter the Rabbit Hole, as always, reminding you to... Don't put things in other people's drinks or cigarettes. And if you see someone else doing that, please report them. <laughs> Unless it's a tiny umbrella uh, or like a slice of lime, because you're just trying to make the drink more fun and tropical. No, those things are covered in bacteria. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> You're such a fun sponge, Alicia. Uh, okay, alright. Don't uh don't drug other people's drinks or put put dirty umbrellas in their drinks. You happy? Oh no, the umbrellas are fine, I just meant the line. Oh right, okay. Yeah. Alright, gang, take care for now. Bye bye. Ciao. Enter the Rabbit Hole is written and presented by William Grant and Alicia Palmer. The music was created by Glenn Marshall. More information and sources can be found in the episode description. You can email us at etrhthepod at gmail or follow us on Instagram at etrhthepod. Thanks for listening.